Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, I'll be speaking with Leslie Loco, the founder and director of the African Futures Institute, which she started in Accra, Ghana in 2020 as a postgraduate school of architecture, a research center, and a public events platform. She is also the curator of the 18th International Architecture Exhibition at the Venice Biennale, opening in May, titled The Laboratory of the Future. In her academic life, she founded the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg and has taught in the UK, the US, Europe, Australia, and Africa. Leslie is also a fiction writer and novelist whose work in both architecture and fiction has looked at the relationship between race, culture, and space. Before we jump into the episode, I'd first like to thank our episode sponsor, Mudwater, a coffee alternative with four adaptogenic mushrooms and Ayurvedic herbs. With only about one-seventh the amount of caffeine as a 12-ounce cup of drip coffee, Mudwater provides energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee. For sustained energy, Mudwater leans on mushrooms in its blend of matcha and in its blend of chai. Each ingredient has been added for a purpose. The lion's mane mushrooms for alertness, cordyceps to help support physical performance, chaga and reishi to support the immune system, turmeric for soreness, and cinnamon for antioxidants. I'm a recent Mudwater convert, and I have to say, on a day like today, which I started with a simple mud shake, a tablespoon of Mudwater, a banana, some almond butter, oat milk, and ice, I have zero desire for coffee. There's none of the hyped up feeling of coffee either. For 15% off your next order and to support the show, go to mudwater.com backslash slowdown. That's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com backslash slowdown and use the code slowdown. And now here's my conversation with Leslie Loco. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to At A Distance. Hello. Let's start with the theme of this year's Venice Architecture Biennale, the Laboratory of the Future. Through your work at African Futures Institute, which you founded in 2020, one of the questions you've been exploring is, what if Africa was truly understood as the laboratory of the future? And so I was hoping you could take me back to the roots of this question for you, which also seems to be the roots of the Biennale's theme. Yeah, I mean, lots of people have asked me, where did the name come from? And to be completely honest, when I moved back from New York in 2020, I kept thinking about the fact that if I don't make this move now and start a school now, I probably never will. And I didn't have a name for it. I had moved back to Edinburgh. And one day on my way to the gym, I walked past a building with a big billboard, which said the Edinburgh Futures Institute, which is a, an initiative of the University of Edinburgh. It's a kind of experimental, if you like, cluster within the university. And I suddenly looked at it and thought, okay, Futures Institute, that's, that's absolutely what I want to say. I'd always thought about using the very rich context of Africa as a kind of testing ground for ideas about where and what the architect of the future, the 22nd or the 23rd century, should be thinking about. And so it was quite serendipitous that this billboard appeared, the idea of starting up a school came, and the idea of, a, of an experimental workshop was always at the back of my mind. So that's kind of how they all came together. 
And the AFI really started in whatever it was, July 2021. And I was appointed the curator in November of 2021. So the two things weren't exactly simultaneous, but they happened very close to one another. And so the the Biennale exhibition, in a sense, became a continuation of the same conversation. So it's really a platform of this rude idea that you had. Yeah. And I mean, it's a platform, you know, a school is very different from an exhibition, but both of them try to articulate something. And so even though at the time I thought the Biennale was quite, I think my first reaction was it's premature for me. I haven't thought about this long enough. And after a couple of weeks, I began to realize, no, I've been thinking about this for about 30 years. Like in in a sense, this is the right time. And this is the first time ever that the Biennale has put the spotlight on Africa and the African diaspora. Compared to years past, this is really a much more diverse, polyvocal affair. (laughs) And on a personal level, and I should add here, you were born in Scotland to a Ghanaian father and a Scottish mother and spent your childhood in Ghana. What does this mean to you personally to be its director this year and to be shaping conversations around this incredible plurality of voices? At one level, it's kind of surreal. I don't know that this was ever in the picture. But I think um, in the last two, three years, for me, the pandemic and the the Black Lives Matter protests are, are kind of inextricably linked. I think that there was a real shift in the global appetite, but also global attention span around how these issues are connected to the built environment, how they're connected to issues of both social and environmental justice, that things are not separate anymore. And somehow the position of being both inside and outside something simultaneously allows you to understand things in a more pluralistic way. I think that's the best way to describe it, that you know, even as a child moving between Ghana and Scotland or Ghana and the UK, you understood instinctively that there was more to the world than what was in front of you at any given point because you had seen, you had experienced other worlds. The position of being plural in terms of your language, your voice, your culture has always seemed a natural position to me. So it's, again, kind of serendipitous that at the age of you know 60, suddenly the world is open to hearing plurality in a way that I think 30 years ago it wasn't. And you know, the vastness of this, what have been some of your approaches or lenses to exploring Africa, the African diaspora? How, how did you go about organizing and curating this? So they're very vast topics, even to talk about Africa at one sense is a kind of fallacy. And to talk about decolonization and decarbonization, they're really broad categories. And I've always found that the more specific you can be about your interests in something, Actually, the easier it is to open up and become richer and more complex. If you start with a very complex idea, eventually you become very lost. So for me, it was really important to say, look, there's two or three things here. One is the idea of the workshop, the idea that it's not a laboratory in the kind of scientific sense of the word where you set up the conditions to perfectly engineer an outcome. This is much more, I think I've spoken about it as Booker T. Washington's idea of the workshop as a place of liberation where people come together in collaboration to explore something. So that was very clear to me. The idea of the future, we're the world's youngest continent. So in a sense, the majority of our population has its future in front of them. 
So the future is a really important conceptual and political space. And I think the success, the kind of global success of things like Wakanda and you know Black Panther and Afrofuturism had also sort of prepared the ground in a way to receive these very imaginative ideas about the future. And the idea also of having a story that is not wrong. I don't say that the story of architecture is a wrong story. I just say it's an unfinished or an incomplete story. And so now suddenly we have the possibility to hear other narratives enrich that story. So those three things were really key to me. Yeah. I find it interesting that for the first time ever, nearly half of the participants are from Seoul or individual practices. So five people or less. And could you speak about this? I mean, throughout much of the 20th and 21st century, there was such a high value placed on scale, on growth. And I think these smaller firms have so much potential to shape culture, shape society through a more collective approach. Absolutely. Yeah. Than say like a, a mega firm or a celebrity architect top-down approach. Absolutely. And I mean, that was really directly influenced, I think, by the last I don't know, maybe 10 years that I've had in academia. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a practicing architect. I've really always been involved in academia. And one of the big, I want to say disappointments for me about academia was that the longer I stayed in it and the kind of higher I rose in the sort of management structures of academia, the less I understood academia as a place of any kind of change, that the bigger and more established the institution, in some senses, the less ability it has to change because they're, they're less flexible, much less fluid. And I think there's something about the scale of practice in Africa and in the diaspora that has never had either the financial or the resources infrastructure to build at scale. So things have remained smaller scale, but also incredibly nimble and very easy both to pick up on change, but also to take action. So it was very important to me in the Biennale to shine the light on that form of practice because it's an alternative model. It means also alternative organizational structures, which you know you never speak about as an architect. It's all, the, the conversation is always about design, but actually the design of your office, like literally who reports to whom, what the financial structures are, these are as important in some senses as anything that you will ever build. So this was a moment to really, I think, test out some of these ideas around nimbleness and um, rapid, yeah, rapid change. Well, perfect segue because I wanted to ask or, or bring up, you know, you're framing and describing the participants as practitioners, not architects, urbanists, designers, etc. Why this distinction? I guess it's an obvious question given what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things I remember um, a conversation that I had with David Ajay that was really significant for me. It was probably about five or six years ago. We were talking in Johannesburg. And he said to me, we build buildings as African or diasporic architects, but actually we also build knowledge. So the building of knowledge is, is every bit as important and as material as a building. And it made me think back maybe 20 years to my time as a student, which was when I first heard the word praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, and it was somebody explaining to me that her praxis included teaching and building and writing and activism X, Y, Z. And I was 
always very drawn to that idea of a kind of polyvalent practice. So in looking for architects and artists and filmmakers and people in the the kind of African diaspora who are really involved in multiple outputs, it just seemed a natural distinction to call them practitioners. But then what was also very interesting was finding other people who not African, not diasporic, not Black, who also work in exactly the same way. And that community of thinkers also really opened my eyes to the idea that you can build kinship with people who are not like you in any way, shape or form, but who think like you. Uh, this was very, very insightful. Yeah. The exhibition Dangerous Liaisons will take place at the Arsenale featuring 37 practitioners. Why this provocative uh, exhibition name? <laughs> How do you explain dangerous liaisons? And, and could you also offer a taste, perhaps, of what visitors might expect to be able to see? So I think one of the aspects of architecture that's always been quite both interesting and puzzling to me has been the obsession with the purity of architecture. You know, architects spend so much time talking about what is not architecture. I mean, I, I always say this to students, that if I had a dollar for every time someone said to me, this is not architecture, <laughs> or how is this architecture? I could have retired you know, 20 years ago. And this kind of obsession with keeping the discipline clean of outside influences, it's always been of interest to me. And I think we tend to think of professions, medicine, law, architecture, engineering as strong, but I've actually always seen them in the reverse. I think professions that spend so much of their time policing their boundaries are actually really weak. And if you think about art and music and you know literature, I think of them as strong disciplines because they're porous. They allow outside influence in. So the term dangerous liaison was, was really a way to indicate this aspect of danger that architecture is always afraid of being polluted by something else. But actually it's in the pollution that, that, that the most fruitful ideas emerge. So everyone in the Arsenale is an architect plus. It's an architect that does something else. And I love literature. So the term was kind of just immediate, yeah. <laughs> Central to the Biennale is the role of imagination. You've, and you began creating African Futures Institute from a series of what if questions. <laughs> And I have to bring up here, you're also a fiction writer, and, and you have your 13th novel coming out next year. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so in this context, where do you see the line between fiction and reality? I mean, how essential is it for architects, urbanists, practitioners, let's say, to think speculatively and ask these what-if questions in their day-to-day -day work, in decisions big and small? So to answer that fully, I think I would have to go back again to my undergraduate training. And I don't know that it was ever said explicitly to me. And it may also be that I interpreted the feedback wrongly. I'm, I'm very open to that. But my sense at the time of being an African or Black student was that I was not allowed to be speculative that Africa was a continent of so much need, so much scarcity, so much deprivation, that imagination was really, it's about the kind of Maslow hierarchy of needs. My imagination was left to those who had the resources to imagine. And I think 
my instinctive reaction against that was both political and personal. I wanted to claim the right to be as imaginative as anyone else. And that was a long time ago. But I also think that there's something in the in the psyche of cultures that are both simultaneously very, very old. I mean, Africa is the world's oldest continent at one level, but also young. And this tension between a very, very deep past, a kind of interrupted or truncated present, and a very open, unimagined future is a really potent combination. So with certainly with African students over the last sort of 10 years, the future isn't just an idea, it's a place. And architects are so intimately involved in place it seemed to me to be a really logical place to start working, I think is the way I would describe it. The sort of tension between planning and imagination is maybe the, the way I would put it. I think that the architect is the interlocutor between the plan and the imaginary, and that somehow the job of the architect is to translate between those two paradigms, which are actually quite different. So that's probably a very long <laughs> well, I know I, I, I love that you're bringing this up because I think oftentimes we talk about quote unquote resource scarcity. And mm-hmm. I think that that's actually driven largely by capitalistic colonial lines of thinking. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. the planet's abundant. Yeah. Why can't we reframe and talk about how abundant things are? Like, why does it have to be? driven by this sense of capitalistic doom. Absolutely, and also by the sense of transaction. I mean, that in the end, I think that's kind of what I learned about architecture school, is that in itself, it's also transactional. You give up a certain period of your life in order to obtain certain kinds of skills that you then go out into the world and, I suppose, in one way or another, enact. But I remember throughout my training, just hearing this endless conversation about, oh, in the real world, you can't do this, or in, in reality, this can't be done, or, um, you know, you wait until you're in the real world, as if somehow this the school was not real. And I think a little bit less of that, and a little bit more of the sort of, both the political and the social, but also the ethical dimensions of of imagination, they need to be brought back into it, because imagination is not a luxury. For me, it was first and foremost, a tool of liberation. If you cannot imagine a better world, you will never make it. And I know that that phrase has become so hackneyed, you know, everybody's talk, I mean, everybody talks about making a better world. But in some senses, the tools that the architect is given are the tools to make the world. Going back to this praxis idea, you began your academic life studying Hebrew and Arabic and then switched to sociology and then finally landed on architecture. So do you view this trajectory as emblematic of your broader worldview, this sort of praxis perspective? Do you think about your early studies in those languages or sociology as helping shape your architectural understanding or approach? Yeah, but I think also maybe in a quite unexpected way, one of the reasons I decided eventually to study architecture was I was tired of knowing a little about a lot of things. I was drawn to the idea that as as a professional, you would know one thing in great detail. So I think I was looking for the security in inverted commas, not necessarily financial, but 
the kind of intellectual security of knowing one thing well. And the odd thing was that after five years of architecture school, I genuinely thought I knew less than when I had entered. And in many ways, it makes enormous sense to me now that I chose architecture, which is one of those neither fish nor fowl disciplines. It's constantly in play. And there's something about the relationship of architecture to other disciplines that is, for me, very reminiscent of my own identity, which was never one thing or another. It was always about the the interplay between things. And when I stopped writing fiction, you know, I wrote fiction full-time for about 13, 14 years. I remember my agent asking me once, you know, what does it feel like to go back into to architecture? And I said, I feel like I've come home. It was a strange, yeah, I can't describe it. it. It's somehow the insecurity of architecture feels very normal to me. Yeah, Almost secure. <laughs> yeah. And, and then again, it's such a cliche, but, you know, architecture's impulse generally is to root, to be solid, to be stable. But actually, I always came to it from the opposite perspective of what does it mean to be fluid? And now after whatever it is, 20, 25 years, the conversations around architecture are now opening up to embrace that fluidity. And that's an incredibly exciting place to see a discipline begin to shift. And underlying a lot of this conversation we're having explicitly or not is the subject of decolonization. And you're making decolonization and decarbonization foundational to both the Biennale and African Futures Institute. What are some of the greatest misunderstandings as you see it around decolonization and decarbonization, particularly within the realm of architecture? That's a really great question. And I think there are a couple. I've said it many times, but the black body was Europe's first unit of energy. So from my perspective, this relationship between, let's say, the colony and carbon, they're linked in the body. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that People often think about those things as states, like you achieve decolonization, you achieve decarbonization. And I think actually they are not. They are ongoing, endless processes. I don't think one ever reaches the end product because there is no end state. I suppose I've become aware more now in the last three or four years than I ever was that change can sometimes be sparked by a catalyst. Like I would say COVID was one. The murder of George Floyd was another one. Those were brutal moments. But then change itself happens in very, very long time spans, like incremental. And so decolonization to me is an example of that. It's a long process. And there are moments where the, the speed of change or the awareness is sped up. It's catalytic, it's immediate. And then there are moments where it's so slow that you don't know that anything has changed. So... Does that answer your question? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> well, yeah. it, do, it does, I think. I mean, this idea of something happening so slowly, you don't perceive it. Yes. And then one day you wake up and it's, And it's oh. changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was thinking that the other day that, for example, I would never say in English the word fireman anymore. I would say fire person. And the gendering of certain things, it, it took a long time for me to change my language, but it did change. I think with the kind of opening up of our understanding of gender, for example, it's going to take a long time to 
overcome the grammar of saying they and there, but it will happen. And language for me is a very good example. It trickles along very, very slowly. And then suddenly there's a new vocabulary. Well, I've always argued architecture is a form of writing too. And it is, yes. Thinking about, you know, it's interesting hearing you talk about the fluidity of architecture earlier, because I think if we're talking about gender in language, thinking about, you know, fluidity of architecture in that sense is actually also very interesting and something that I think is is shifting, even if many people don't perceive it right now. A hundred percent, yeah. I, I mean, I still remember reading Jennifer Bloomer as a, I don't know, like a fourth year student and just closing one of her chapters and just thinking, I didn't know it was possible to write like this. That every so often you come across a writer who so expands your understanding of what language can do. And I think you're absolutely right. Architecture is also a kind of language. It's a kind of écriture. And teaching, particularly in, in Southern Africa and, and in Ghana over the past four or five years, to bear witness to what students who come to this language from other perspectives can bring to it has been mind-blowing. So to finish, beyond the biennial, looking past the Biennale, <laughs> what Is are... there a future beyond it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what are you most looking forward to? What, in other words, is giving you the most hope right now about our future? I have to say it's the African Futures Institute. You know, it's putting together an institute is more difficult than I ever, ever imagined. Uh, building a team is really hard, finding the kind of funding support, all of that. But I have to say it's the thing that gets me up in the morning. Um, I like the time scale of education. It's one, two generational. You're not going to see the change in your lifetime in, in a way. And that kind of takes the pressure off a bit. I really want to leave that institute in, in a viable form. Yeah. Leslie, thank you so much for coming on today. This was a pleasure. Thank you very much. That was lovely to chat. Thank you. Thanks to our episode sponsor, Mudwater, a coffee alternative with four adaptogenic mushrooms and Ayurvedic herbs. For 15% off and to support the show, go to mudwater.com backslash slowdown. That's M-U-D-W-T-R.com backslash slowdown and use the code slowdown and thanks for listening to hear more episodes of at a distance you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts you can follow us on instagram at slowdown.tv to sign up for our weekly newsletter head to our website at www.slowdown.tv this episode was produced by ramon broza emily jang and johnny simon <laughs>